Jesus had been crucified. He was murdered unjustly under false pretenses. They claimed that he had blasphemed because he said that he was equal with God. They claimed that he broke the Sabbath because he healed people on their sacred day. The leaders even conspired against him wickedly on the Sabbath. They found false witnesses to claim that he was speaking against the temple. But even those accounts couldn't make sense of reality. Jesus was taken to a cross after being beaten, after being mocked, after being spat upon, after being abused. And even though the governing authorities found nothing in him worthy of punishment, the hatred in the hearts of the people was so intense that they cried out for the murder of their Savior. He was placed on a cross, nailed to it, and there he died. But death couldn't hold him. Three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead. This morning, I want to read to you from an account in John's Gospel, starting in chapter 20, that tells us of some events that take place after Jesus' resurrection. Chapter 20 opens with the story of Mary Magdalene going to the tomb on Easter Sunday morning, the day that Jesus raised. Upon arriving at the tomb, she sees that the stone has been rolled away and that Jesus is not inside, so she runs to go find the disciples. She gets Peter and John who go running to the tomb ahead of her. When they get there, they they look inside to see where he was and they see that he was gone. In fact, the the scarf that had been on his face, the linen uh, cloths that had been draped over his body were now laid uh, folded next to where he would have been if his body had still been there. They saw that he was gone. Upon leaving, Mary Magdalene shows up again and she steps inside the tomb to see it empty. And there she sees two angels. Knowing that Jesus is gone, she steps back outside the tomb and she, she sees a man who she assumes is a gardener. And she says to this gardener, Sir, where have they taken his body? But this gardener, of course, was Jesus himself. And with one word, she realized who it was. He said her name, Mary. And she fell down, saying, Rabboni, meaning teacher. And she clung to him. And he said, Mary, Mary, don't cling to me. I have not yet ascended to my father. She lets go reluctantly and runs back to tell the disciples that she had seen the risen Lord. That's where the story begins for us today in John 20, verse 19. I just want to pray right now as we dive into this text as we begin uh, for this Easter Sunday morning. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Father, this morning we acknowledge that while there is nothing more special about this particular April Sunday than the other Sundays in the year, we leverage this day as a special day of acknowledgement, one that we give a particular global focus that believers around the world today want to especially remember. 
that it was a specific day of the year, an actual date on the calendar that you raised your son from the dead. Father, help us to acknowledge that today with a special kind of sensibility. Help us to see the reality of what took place as just as real as we are sitting here today. Father, we need your help in doing that. We need to see the cross. We need to see the resurrection. And we need to see Jesus. Please help us as we seek to do that today. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. The disciples were gathered together, and in a moment we'll find out that Thomas wasn't there. We know that Judas, of course, wasn't there. He had already killed himself by this point for his betrayal of his Savior. And so there are ten disciples in a house, and they've locked themselves in. And why they locked themselves in? It says, for fear of the Jews. They knew that they were in the crosshairs of the Jewish religious leaders. And soon, there would be an official edict from those leaders to go hunt down and destroy the Christians. In fact, a man named Saul, who will later be named Paul, was commissioned to go bring these people to justice, even chase them down in other cities and even other nations. And out of this fear, they locked themselves into a house. They didn't have their Savior with them anymore. Even though he had told them time and again that he would be killed and raised, they didn't understand it. It had not yet been made clear to them. And so they cowered. They were afraid of the Jews. Is that interesting? Each of those ten men were, in fact, Jews. Now, of course, the book of John uses that term Jews more than even the other gospel accounts to refer to the religious people who had set themselves against Jesus. But it is significant still to see that these men who were once called Jews are now hiding themselves from the Jews. They are now Christians. They had set themselves to be disciples of Jesus. And even in his crucifixion, even though now he was dead to them, they were no longer a part of the Jews, but they were Christians, and they locked the doors. If you are a Christian, just like these disciples, your primary citizenship is in heaven and not on earth. Not in your nationality, not in your bloodline, not in what you do for work. Your primary identity is Christian. I don't know if you're frustrated with the way that our nation is responding to things today. And perhaps it's absolutely right to be frustrated. But we ought to be frustrated as aliens, as citizens of heaven here for a while in America. American is no longer a primary association for us. Our chief identity, like it is for these disciples, is in Christ. And Jesus came and stood among them. So the doors are locked, and now Jesus stands among them. We're going to see another account like this later in this exact same passage, where doors are locked, they're in a home, keeping others out, and all of a sudden, Jesus is in their midst. This is very likely a supernatural act being referred to. Perhaps even to show that his resurrected body is not limited by walls. 
Now we can be sure that regardless as to what exactly is going on here, Jesus, our resurrected Savior, cannot be stopped by locked doors. You know, there's a phrase that's used in Revelation chapter 3. It's in a message being given to the church of Laodicea. In this message, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens, I will come in and I will dine with him. (coughs) And although this is written to a church of believers, I've heard Christians use that phrase as as an analogy for salvation. And some even go so far as to say that people can lock Jesus out. They can keep him away from where he wants to enter. But the truth is, Even if the door is locked, that lock cannot keep Jesus out. Jesus goes through whichever door he darn well pleases. We should be grateful for that. Something that's hard to miss in these post-resurrection accounts when Jesus appears is that rather than in one singular giant gathering of all of the believers, all of the disciples... Rather than showing up for one big event like that, Jesus goes over and over to individual groups of people, sometimes one, sometimes a pair, sometimes a small group in a house like this, and other times large groups of people, even as many as 500, as Paul will later tell us. This is interesting. It's something that we ought not let fade away as we are looking at this right now. This is the way that the gospel was intended to be spread. Jesus shows up to one person at a time, a group at a time, and on a rare occasion, a large group at a time. In fact, Jesus warned before this event even took place that there would be households split up because of him. In other words, some would believe while the others would not believe. He knew that it might be one person at a time, two people at a time, and on an occasion, a group. God uses big groups sometimes, but we should not expect that the primary way that people will get saved is at big rallies. Jesus models the method that will be used throughout this church age to spread the gospel. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. These disciples were shocked to see Jesus. And he met their shock by saying, Look at the scars. Look at the nail holes. Look at the piercing in my side. Evidently, the scars of Jesus' crucifixion are still on his body, even in a resurrected state. He says, peace be with you. He says this three different times in the passage we're reading today. It's an encouragement to these believers, these disciples, to have courage, know that they can have peace even in the midst of trial and tribulation. They have nothing to fear. Now, I know there are questions about this particular paragraph I just walked through here, and they're good questions, but it wasn't my intent to to go through the particulars of this particular uh, passage right here, but rather than skipping over this as a bridge in our text, I'm just going to tell you what I think it means, and on another occasion, 
Lord willing, I hope to unpack it more thoroughly for you. Here, Jesus commissions these disciples for the work of spreading the gospel. They will be uniquely gifted, uniquely equipped, and uniquely ordained for the task. While they will receive the Holy Spirit along with the other believers on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, here they receive a special anointing for their special work. And they will be given supernatural discernment to exercise discipline in the church and to guard her from wolves. And this brings us to the passage I was hoping to share with you today. Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Remember Thomas? His name means twin. The Greek version of his name is Didymus. I might say that in your footnotes. He's called this, perhaps, very likely, because he was a twin. He was one of a pair of twin brothers. But others have suspected that this may be a way of saying that he looked like Jesus. He represented Jesus, in a sense. Maybe he had some characteristics that were similar to Jesus, and so they called him a twin that shared some attributes with Jesus. That's possible. We don't altogether know. The text doesn't tell us. Nevertheless, not a lot is said about this disciple. And other than a few notable big guys, John or or Peter, you don't hear a lot about the individual disciples. You just get snapshots, and only a few of them in these gospel accounts. He's known to us today, of course, as Doubting Thomas. But I think we should be cautious to not import too much onto his character with that thinking. Because we only have very few scenes of him in the New Testament to give us clarity on who he was. We should, though, probably remember that this is the same Thomas who was ready to die with Jesus when Jesus was heading towards Jerusalem to go see his beloved friend Lazarus who had gotten sick and they would find word, get word to find that he had actually already died. Jesus was nowhere near Jerusalem at the time. He was on the other side of the Jordan River and he hears from his friends in Bethany, very close to Jerusalem, that Lazarus is sick. He's called to go there. His disciples caution him They tell him, please don't go. They warn him from going towards Jerusalem, which is the the lion's den, the belly of the beast. It's the epicenter of all the frustrations against Jesus. It's the place where all these religious leaders had their seats of authority, and they were out to kill him. They knew that if he headed that direction, he would die, as he certainly would. Jesus set his heart to go towards Jerusalem anyway. And as he was heading out, it says this in John 11, 16. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now, I wonder if Thomas might hope that that would be the way that he is most remembered, the one willing to die alongside Jesus. But Christian tradition even goes further. Tradition tells us that Thomas went on to spread the gospel as far as India and some say maybe even as far as China. It's believed that he was martyred for the gospel while in India by being run through with spears. But unfortunately for him, this is certainly his most memorable moment and one he's known for. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand 
into his side, I will never believe. The disciples come. He wasn't there the first time to have seen Jesus as they had. And they tell him, we have seen the Lord. These disciples were doing exactly what they should have done. These ten were being witnesses for Jesus in front of their friend Thomas. Thomas, of course, resisted. He did not want to believe, and it wouldn't be hard to imagine that his response was influenced by his, influenced by his deep emotional loss. Thomas doubted. He said, I will never believe. It should be noted that Thomas's doubting is not so unique in Scripture. Look at the Great Commission passage. This is in Matthew 28. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read this for you. This is that famous passage where Jesus gathers disciples together and he tells them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. It is at that point, just a couple verses prior to that memorable moment, prior to Jesus' ascension, that it says this in verses 16 and 17 of Matthew 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now I take this to mean that the disciples, the eleven, worshipped, but others doubted. That means the other Galilean followers of Jesus, the other Galilean disciples who were already there, they didn't need to come from Jerusalem. The Jerusalem disciples were there and they came from there to meet with the Galilean Christians and there was a group of people present there at that time. They had already been breathed on by Jesus, commissioned by Jesus, received the Holy Spirit and a special anointing. I don't think they doubted Jesus at that point. I think it was the other followers present, some of which could have doubted. Thomas was certainly not alone in his doubt. He just is the only disciple of the 11 left who's named. You know many doubting Thomases in your life. Right now you do. Even if you don't know them by name, you know people in your life who struggle to believe that that Jesus guy that all the Christians believe in actually raised from the dead. In fact, you may once have been a doubting Thomas. Perhaps right now, you still are. There are genuine reasons to doubt Jesus' resurrection. As a Christian, as a believer in the resurrection, hear me say, there are genuine reasons to doubt Jesus' resurrection. Most notably, resurrections are impossible. It is not possible for a person to be raised from the dead people don't raise from the dead have you ever been to a funeral and seen it reversed in the moment you stood there as a person came out of a casket it is impossible for a person to come back to life like that our claim as christians is not that resurrections are possible it's that resurrections are impossible but that what is impossible for man is possible for God. The whole claim is that it is a supernatural event. 
supernaturally, extraordinary, cannot be measured, cannot be tested empirically like many people would like to. Make no mistake about it. The whole of Jesus' life is supernatural. You must believe in the impossible to believe in Jesus' resurrection. There are other reasons to doubt. You weren't there. None of us was there. None of us have seen the resurrected Jesus. That's a good reason to doubt, isn't it? You must rely on witnesses. That's what you must rely on. If you want to know the accounting, the stories of Jesus coming back to life, you have to believe what someone else has said. Let me tell you, this is a supernatural thing as well. You cannot believe and be saved by a natural belief alone. God must awaken the spirit in you, make you alive, regenerate your heart that you may believe. Yes, it is a genuine reason to doubt that you were not there to see it take place. And third reason you can think of that is a genuine reason to doubt the resurrection is it will cost you. Of these disciples, all of them will give their lives because of their belief in the resurrected Jesus. With the only exception, perhaps, of John, who we think probably didn't die by martyrdom immediately, he himself was persecuted, he himself was was brutalized, he himself was attacked, he himself was oppressed and abused for being a believer in the resurrected Jesus. All the others, we believe historically, were martyred because they would not reject the risen Christ. Quite simply, it is easier to hold on to doubt than to believe. For some people today, they will have to reject the family belief system that they've been raised in in order to believe in a resurrected Christ. They may need to turn away from family and friends and those that they have known and loved all their lives in belief in order to turn in faith to a resurrected Christ. But I want you to consider, even in the face of those genuine doubts, even using Thomas as an example of this for us, these disciples, even though he doubted, they didn't kick him out. He remained a part of their group. He remained with the disciples. He didn't believe, they did. He doubted, they were no longer doubting. He was welcome to have doubts with them. There have always been various degrees of doubts amongst groups of Christians. We're not afraid of each other's doubts. There have always been those things. We are eager for you to bring your doubts here. Be helped, loved, served, accepted by people who probably once had the exact same doubts that you're struggling with. No judgment here on that. We want you here. What comfort do you think that Thomas could have offered to other doubters? Thomas could have been the one to say, I know, I know, it sounds crazy. I know you're skeptical. I know that you are. I was just like you. I was like you. I even had my best friends tell me. They told me that they saw him. They told me that the promises he made that he would raise came to pass. They saw the nail holes and the spear piercing in his side. They told me. They don't lie. They're not liars. I don't think that they're so crazy that they could have a mass hallucination. They told me, and I didn't believe. I understand your doubt. 
Christian churches are filled with people who understand your doubt. There's no better place to explore that than amongst people who will compassionately, sensitively seek to help you with that doubt. And this unbelief persists for the next eight days. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So eight days went by. And these disciples are all hanging out together, probably in hiding. I'd imagine send one or two out at a time to get supplies and bring things back. Probably with that scarf over the face like you see in the movies of the Palestinian men covering up so no one knows who they are, heading out in the dark and coming back. They're staying away from the authorities. They remain together. Eight days go by. Can you imagine the conversations that took place in those eight days? How many times do you think they tried to convince Thomas? No, Thomas, Thomas, I know you're skeptical. I'm telling you, don't you remember he said that he was going to raise? We saw him. Do you think I'm lying to you, Thomas? How many times did one of them take him to the side and go, listen, listen, I know, I know you and Andrew have not really ever gotten along really well, but, but dude, you know me. I'm not lying. I'm not crazy. I'm telling you, it was him. It was our Jesus. If you've ever tried to convince somebody of the gospel, I've ever pleaded with somebody and their heart was closed. They just refused and they persisted in that no matter what you could say. You felt that feeling. These men did too. They just needed Jesus to show up. If Jesus would just show up already, then Thomas would believe. But Thomas is saying, I won't believe unless I get to do what you did. And in his stubbornness, They waited eight days. But then Jesus came. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Notice how gently Jesus deals with Thomas. One of my favorite Renaissance-era paintings that I've ever seen was painted by Michelangelo. And it was a painting of this exact event where Thomas is right in front of Jesus. Two other disciples are with him. Uh, So there's three disciples and then Jesus. And Jesus is pulling back his robe to show the scar in his side. And Thomas is leaned all the way in with his finger in Jesus' side. And Michelangelo decided to to, to image that with his finger a knuckle deep into the side of Jesus, face almost pressed up against his chest. And, And what I like about that painting is that it goes to show the intimacy with which Jesus was engaging with this man whom he loved. It wasn't him floating above the ground from a distance and saying, you stay over there, I'm up here. He drew them in. I think that painting captures that moment so well. It was an intimate, close, drawing in kind of moment. What a gentle and compassionate thing for Jesus to do. It reminds me a bit of what we see in the parable that Jesus told about being the good shepherd. When he says that as the good shepherd, he leaves the 99 and goes out for the one. Too many people had this picture of Jesus in their mind. That, that They imagined if there was a room full of people, the doubters would be stuck on the outskirts. 
and those faithful ones would be up close to him. But Jesus enters into the room and he goes right up to the doubter. He finds the one who's struggling the most with the faith. He intimately relates to him. We have a good and gentle, wonderful Savior. Luke records this same event, very likely the same event, in Luke 24. I want to give you a parallel accounting of this. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, they were marveling. He said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Even after Jesus showed up, people hesitated. These disciples hesitated because it seemed too good to be true. They disbelieved for joy. That means that the loss was so great, they didn't want to get their hopes up. They, they, even, they, they saw it. They knew they were seeing something. They didn't go, ah, it's a figment of my imagination. They said, it's a spirit. It must be an angel or a ghost or an apparition of some kind because we all know it's right there. We see him. And Jesus goes, don't have doubts rise up in your heart. Look, it's flesh and bone here with you. And just to make it even more sure, rather than rebuking in frustration, he says, bring me some food. And he eats because ghosts cannot eat. Jesus didn't get angry. Instead, here he helped them with their unbelief. If you or someone you know is struggling to believe, you are among friends. And our Savior is a gentle, sympathetic, compassionate, patient savior he is good and wonderful believers are not those whose belief is perfect but those who believe in one who is jesus in his perfections shows all the compassion all the patience all the gentleness that we need even and especially in our times of doubt No one in the Gospels ever asked Jesus to help with their unbelief, and he rejected them. Do not disbelieve, but believe. That's what he says to Thomas. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas was a believer already, wasn't he? He was with Jesus for years. He was one of the traveling disciples who went around with Jesus. He wasn't Judas. I say that because occasionally Jesus says things about there being one among the twelve who's not a true disciple. Even the commentators in in these gospels, the authors themselves will occasionally insert a point to say that Judas did not actually believe. He wasn't really one of the twelve. He just looked like it. He wasn't like the rest of them. One was not a genuine believer, the other 11 were, and Thomas was among those 11 believing disciples. He did believe something but he did not believe something utterly critical about Jesus. Namely, that he raised from the dead. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 makes it clear just how critical it is 
that you believe in the resurrection. I'm gonna read to you verses 12 through 14. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He goes on to say in verse 19, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What you believe about Jesus really matters. You see why Easter is so important? You see that it's not just a debated event in Christianity, that there's two different camps in Christianity. It is fundamental to being a believer. To say it another way, if Thomas were to have persisted in his disbelief, he would not be in heaven. So what was Thomas's response? Verse 28 says, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. It's hard to not imagine those words coming off his lips with great emotion, great joy. Thomas's confession serves as the climax of this gospel. My Lord and my God. He looks to Jesus and says, you are my Lord, you are my God. Remember the first verse in John? The first verse in this gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word, the Word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us, like it says in verse 14 of that same, that same chapter. Jesus is the Word. Jesus is God. And it says that right out of the gate in the very beginning of this book. And here we are at the end where we get a proclamation from one of Jesus' closest disciples, my Lord and my God. This book is riddled. This letter, John, is riddled with statements about Jesus, many coming from him. It tells us that Jesus is the word who was God. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That Jesus is the bread of life. He says of himself, he is the light of the world, the gate of the sheepfold, the resurrection and the life. He is the good shepherd. He is the way, the truth, and the life, the true vine, the crucified savior. He is our risen Christ. And he is, as Thomas here says, my Lord, my God. This is a book of worship. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. They were people who had not seen the resurrected Jesus. And yet, they believed the accounts of witnesses. They believed even though this disciple didn't. And Jesus here pronounces blessing on those who believe without seeing. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. Believers today are not those who've seen the physical Jesus. We weren't alive then. We were like the other people that Jesus is blessing who had not seen him and yet had already believed. They believed before Thomas had believed. And Peter repeats the same idea. He repeats what Jesus says here in 1 Peter 1.8. And he extends it to people who had never seen Jesus in their entire lives. 
He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's 1 Peter 1.8. Not one of us gets to celebrate Easter this year because we have seen Jesus. But because we believe in Jesus. You and I are blessed to believe in him even without seeing him yet face to face. One day we will. Because Jesus has raised from the dead, those who believe will join him in resurrection one day and worship him in glory forever. I want to finish our time by reading the last two verses of that chapter. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Father, we love you and are so grateful for the love that you have shown to us in sending your one and only Son to die for our sins. Father, I know that there are people who are listening to this who need to be strengthened, who need to be built up, who need to be encouraged, who need to be reminded by truths, stirred up by way of reminder to hear the same story a hundredth time, a thousandth time, that they would have, they would have the, the wherewithal, the courage, the ability to face all kinds of trials and struggles and all kinds of potential doubt. Father, give us the gift of faith Lord, I know that there are people who may listen to this who don't yet know you, don't yet believe in you. Maybe they're like doubting Thomas. Maybe, maybe they believe certain things about Jesus. They believe he was a good teacher. They might even believe in some of the supernatural healings he had done. They might even believe that he was crucified on a cross. But they're just not yet convinced that he is the resurrected Savior, the one by, by whom we may be saved. Lord, I pray that you would awaken their hearts. You would give them the gift of repentance and faith in Jesus, that they would believe and gain the blessing that Jesus talks about here, the blessing of belief without yet having seen him, that the day that we all together unite and see him face to face in heaven will be a glorious day that we've been waiting for. We believed in you, Jesus. We believed in you all through our lives from the point that you saved me. I have been believing in you, and now, now I get to see you Oh, what a sweet day that'll be. Father, thank you for Easter. Thank you for Jesus. And we pray all of these things in gratitude and worship to you. To you, the Father, in the name of the Son, because of the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.